0: the Power For Good Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Ray Almeida, entrepreneur, environmental advocate, somatic healer, life coach, and really just a grateful part of this beautiful planet. I'm also a former alcoholic and addict, and I'm here to ask some really hard questions while diving deep and discovering how influential people are using their power for good or not. What happens when someone goes through an awakening? can people really change? How and why? Let's explore. Hello loves and welcome back to the Power for Good podcast. Today I have a dear friend of mine, J. Mark Accento. Welcome to the show. Hi.
1: Hello my love and hello all you lovely beings seeking to awaken to your power and make this world a better, more beautiful place. Hi, 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 hi. I'm so happy to be here with you that we're finally doing this.
0: Yes, <laughs> we made it, we did it. <laughs> yes, so J-Mark and I actually met on retreat in Greece.
1: No, Ibiza.
0: Oh my gosh, okay, yeah. Wait, I saw Saadi Simone's retreat in Ibiza. Ibiza. Yeah. It was actually right when I had gotten out of uh, rehab. So at the beginning of my sober journey, when I met you.
1: Oh my goddess. It was right when around like maybe six months after I was like, healing is my number one priority, period. And I like cut out everything in my life that wasn't in service of that. So we both met like right at peak of like, let's go. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. We've come such a long way since then. It's been such a beautiful journey. I absolutely adore you and I'm so happy that you're here.
1: I love you too. It's such an honor.
0: So let's hop in and I'm going to ask you the, the question that I always ask everyone at the beginning of this podcast, which is, how are you using your power for good?
1: Ah, I love this. For me, utilizing power for good, I I believe it's where that intersection of compassion and wisdom is. So uh, my lineage is rooted in Bajrayana Buddhism, which is very much Tibetan Buddhism. They often talk about the two wings of the bird, and there's a lot of different versions of the story, but my favorite one to just use in the relative way is just compassion and wisdom. Compassion is understanding and living a life where you want to alleviate the suffering of others, and wisdom is understanding that you're part of that equation, too. And I spent a lot of my life being a fawner, giving, 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 giving. And through that, a lot of resentment built up for the people I was showing up for. Because I wasn't doing it in a way that was sustainable. And I would always feel hurt when I would give, 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 never ask for support, and then resent people for not giving what I never asked for. And so for me to live a life where I am utilizing my power for good, it's being able to show up as lovingly kind and compassionate as I can be and also recognize I need space for myself because I I no longer want to be that. Can I cuss on your podcast? (laughs) Yes, of course. Wonderful. I no longer want to be that bitch who pours from an empty cup. And that was my narrative for over two decades of my life. And so for me to use my power for good, it's take the time to nurture myself and then take whatever I gain from that to support and serve others, whether it's as a coach or with art or with creativity. Or oftentimes it's just, I see somebody on Facebook post like, hey, I'm going through it. And without agenda, without like sign up for my program, i was just like, hey, let's hop on the phone. I can hold space for you. Let's do that. And I recognize when I'm in a space to offer that to people.
0: I love that. Thank you for that beautiful, deep explanation and sharing of wisdom. Always Ah, so from the heart. So you really are one of the most authentic and real people that I know. From the moment that I met you, I felt such a deep connection. We did a practice, a partner practice together where we were dancing and then we looked at each other in our eyes and I think we were screaming at each other. (laughs) And then we had our backs to each other and I could feel just your heart beating through your back. And I remember it was one of the first times I did a practice like that. It was so, so beautiful to do with you. And in you, I saw such an authenticity. It really inspired me. And I thought, if they can do it, so can
1: I. I remember that practice so fondly.
0: <laughs> yeah. It it makes me feel emotional even now. But I I, I just want to ask, like, how how do you show up so authentically in this
1: world? I show up authentically in this world because of the relationship I built with my suffering. You know, as a as a Filipino first generation American, third culture child, and also as a somebody who spent a long time closeted, closeted to the extent that I didn't even know I was queer. I was very good, I call myself a master I called myself a master of disguise. I was very good at hyper code switching and becoming whoever people needed me to be for me to perceive they liked me for me to perceive that I was exactly the kind of person that people wanted to be around. I actually remember for my 16th high school birthday, I was always a social butterfly, and I invited all my different friend groups to my birthday party, and they all came And it felt like I was in the high school cafeteria at my own birthday party where, like, everyone was just with their own little cliques and groups and not talking to each other. And I'd, like, go with my theater friends and talk about theater stuff. And I'd go with my preppy job friends and talk about sports things. And so for me to show up authentically, I really just had to to ask the question, like, who the fuck am I? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Who am I? What does that mean? And, and for me to understand that, I really had to come to terms with the fact that I had spent so much of my life defining myself by labels, roles, and trauma. And it wasn't until I reconciled that and that I understood, I often use the metaphor of a gift box. So when we are born, we're put into a box and everybody who sees us is like, oh, that's a nice box. It'd look prettier if there was some ribbon on it. Oh, let's put some stickers on that box. Oh, what if we add some rainbow color paper to that box? And then everyone's seeing us, we're comparing our box to other boxes. We're like, oh, that's a prettier box. That's a good box. And then we over-identify with the box and we forget there's a fucking gift inside. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, so I became very curious about like, what if I could just make this box a little play thing, which is great as a non-binary person because someday, like today I'm more in my feminine energy. I have this beautiful cute blousey top I got. And some days I'm in more my more masculine energy. Or some days I'm dressed feminine, but I'm expressing masculine. And then even as a Filipino person and from a country that has been so colonized that there's no really fundamental idea of what it means to be Filipino, it allowed me, invited myself to play in a space of I can be whoever the fuck I want to be. And as long as I have this desire to alleviate harm and this idea this desire to uplift people, I can't go wrong. And if I do make a mistake and cause harm to people, I can take accountability for that. And sometimes it hits, I'm just human. Sometimes I cause harm and I, I go into a pit. I'm like, what the fuck, is oh my God, it's so terrible. And then I come out of it, I'm like, okay, I fucked up. But behavior doesn't mean being. the That extra ugly piece of sticker that got put on my box doesn't mean that my gift is anything less than beautiful.
0: I absolutely love that. Offer a piece of advice to anyone that is struggling with their identity, that does feel sort of caged in by themselves, lost, wondering, asking themselves that question, who am I? What helped you? What tools? What step-by-step, what what was the first thing that really helped you or the strongest
1: thing? Well, first, to, to answer the first half of that question, who am I is a process. The minute we attach ourselves to something that says, this is who I am, is when we invite ourselves to suffer. And I was very good at this. I was an actor for a long time. And then I was a hip hop dancer. I was a second degree black belt and taekwondo instructor. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be all these things. And every single time I found a new hobby, I'd be like, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a movie star. I'm going to be a dancer and choreograph for all of these musical artists. But then you get burned out on it. And then you go, I don't know who I am anymore because of this. And it happens with us with relationships. We say, I am who I am when I'm with this person. But if things go poorly with that, it's like, I don't know who I am anymore. Or we see a lot of older generation people who are used to longevity in the workplace. They stay in a job for 20, 30, 40 years, then one day get unceremoniously laid off. And they don't know who they are without that job. When we don't allow ourselves to accept that who am I is an ongoing process and it's ever changing and we attach it to something that we perceive as permanent, which doesn't exist, then we open ourselves to suffering. So the biggest thing... I would say that really helped me was first of all, building a relationship with impermanence, which is very Buddhist of me. I realized, yes, not attachment. People often hear about Buddhism. They think it's very nihilistic and it's because we don't really like to think about it. We've talked about this before, but my work often is at that intersection of science and spirituality. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people, like, there's a big difference between saying, I know I'm going to die one day versus your nervous system really feeling like, yeah. I am going to die one day, and I don't know when that day is. So how do I want to show up in the world? Do I want to wake up feeling regret because I decided to kill myself at a job that made me unhappy versus spending time with people I loved? I don't want to be the person who says, I wasted my life. And oftentimes we do that because we overattach to something external because we're so afraid of the unknown. We're so afraid of taking a chance on happiness. Like Thich Han says, the suffering we're experiencing is familiar and safe. But when we do this practice of saying, a practice I got from my guru is every time you leave a room, every time you leave a person. This is intense, by the way, if you're not ready for this, listeners. <laughs> you don't have to do this. But just so you know my process, anytime I leave having a conversation with someone or leave the house, for just a moment, I say, that's the last time I'll ever see that person. And then the next time I see them, it's the most exciting thing ever. Cause I'm like, oh my God, I thought I was never gonna see you again. And then when I go to bed at night, I go, I could die in my sleep. And then when I wake up, I'm like, wow, I didn't die in my sleep. This is great. It's not spinning a narrative. It's not I could die in my sleep. Oh my God, what's my family? What's my family gonna do? What's gonna happen? da 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 da, da. It's just like, I might not wake up in the morning. And then when I wake up in the morning, it's like, whew, I'm a whole new person. I've been reborn. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's quite radical, but I think it's a great way to really bring you into the present and into a space of gratitude as well.
1: Yeah, and that's it's crucial. If we're going to know who we are, a big part of it is just know that who we are right now is so temporary but there can still be gratitude there and there can still be joy you know you and i both have studied under saudi simone and saw and it's it is a tibetan buddhist concept or it is a buddhist concept of the brahma viharas if we can just ground in that at our most unfiltered selves when we're born as babies and ideally babies who haven't taken on too much trauma in the womb at our core what do we want we want love we want there to be less suffering. We want to laugh and smile. And there are those moments where sometimes you look in a baby's eyes and you're like, this baby knows some shit. Like, look at you, wise baby. And that's because the baby doesn't have the filter of like, I know the universe, but what about this, 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 this? It's just a being. So we can root ourselves and find presence in those moments when things are going well, which we often don't. I said this once on social and it's very edgy. (laughs) I said, I don't think a lot of us have ever actually been happy. I think for a lot of us, our happy moments were distractions from our suffering. Because if we have been present with our happiness, when we suffer, we know that it won't last forever. But for a lot of us, when the suffering starts, we go, I've never been happy in my life. That's usually what it is. Or when I was happy was when I was four or five or six. And it's like you just said you had a beautiful day at the beach, but your nervous system isn't on board. You can know intellectually that's not true, but if your nervous system isn't on board, it doesn't make a difference.
0: That is quite an insight for sure. And I think honestly, I totally agree with you. Something interesting, definitely, to tap into. Have we actually have you actually ever been happy in your life? Something that I thought about a lot when I got sober. What is happiness even really mean? Because what is fun? What is joy? What is happiness? I had to sort of redefine it completely. And I realized that how I was defining it before was completely incorrect. It was a complete distraction. Fun, partying, alcohol, drugs, all of it. It wasn't real fun. The people I was hanging out with, it wasn't that wasn't really happiness.
1: It was relief. And that's what it is for a lot of us. And we I think we've talked about this. Like my addiction wasn't in drugs or alcohol because I didn't really grow up around that. So my addiction was food. And shopping. If I turn the camera over here, I call this the altar of my trauma because I just have like a lot of (laughs) geeky figurines there and I still enjoy them. I've gotten rid of a lot since my healing journey and I don't just buy stuff willy-nilly, but I know a lot of people who still have a little bit of a shopaholism in them because we're just trying to find those small dopamine hits to give us relief.
0: It's all chemical at the end of the day.
1: It's all chemistry, baby.
0: (laughs) So I know we've discussed trauma together before, and I wonder, how does trauma play a role in your life, in your evolution, on your path?
1: Trauma has been everything, which sounds really dark. So I want to make sure I'm phrasing this eloquently.
0: When I bring it up, I know it's something that that we wanted to talk about, and it's something that we always dive into, you know, your work with trauma. Let's dive into the
1: dark. Let's we're diving into the shadows, trauma. <laughs> um, we've talked about this before. I have very strong feelings about spiritual bypassing and love and light and all that stuff. It's very it's very good. You know, I often describe the process that I coach people through, as well as my own process, as purely alchemical. You take one source of matter and you transmute it. So you can't get to the love and light without going through the depths of darkness and shadow and all of that stuff. What happens and what has happened for my journey is we are so afraid of feeling discomfort because it's not just feeling discomfort. It's, oh my goodness, my arm hurts. And then the narrative suddenly starts, am I having a heart attack? Am I dying? What's happening? Oh my goodness. And all these things start spinning out of control. And it's because when we feel uncomfortable, our nervous system and our our rational human brains try to find a reason as opposed to just like, oh, maybe I'm just upset and I can just be upset. Maybe I'm just crying and I can just be crying. But when you add a layer of trauma to it, the brain is actively trying to make you feel what it considers normal. And so when we have experienced compounded trauma throughout our lives, what happens is the brain neurochemically normalizes the production of stress chemicals. Uh, The acronym is CAN, so cortisol, adrenaline, and noradrenaline. It's that thing where it becomes so normalized in the same way when you have an addiction, you become addicted to the chemicals produced by whatever substance you're consuming. We are addicted to stress chemicals. And I don't mean that in a fair weather way. I mean that very literally. It's why for a lot of people, before they learn how to rewire their neural pathways, before they learn how to normalize the production of happy chemicals as like, this is homeostasis for me. You'll have a period of your life where things are going fabulous and wonderful and great. And then you self-sabotage because your brain is saying, okay, this was great, but let's go back to normal. And I often tell people, like, we talk about homeostasis and we talk about balance in the healing space, but what the brain considers balanced is different than what we consciously at the mind level consider balanced. For us as human beings and people who are in this world in this work, we recognize, you know, balance is just feeling really at ease, feeling really at peace, feeling contentment. There's no need to run towards anything or run away from anything, but At the brain level, if you have normalized stress and trauma, the brain goes, that's not balance. Balance is what it has been conditioned to consider normal throughout life. So for me, the journey of trauma and how it has impacted me was one of really addressing like, I have these triggers. These triggers exist because of trauma in my past. I can't change the past. My brain is still reacting to those things, but I can work with these triggers. And when we are triggered, what happens is that we are no longer present because the brain goes through two filters simultaneously. It filters through the past and it filters through the future. So my love, if you were to say something triggering to me, right, if I were to suddenly be triggered by you, in that instant, I would be like, she said this. It now reminds me of something that happened in the past, which means the next thing she's going to say or do is this. I am no longer here with you. And a majority of people in the world are living their lives like that. We, I mean, that's why we have so many true crime podcasts these days. That's why we have an explosion of the horror genre. As somebody who wasn't activism, I do see value in news and I do see value in having an understanding of what's happening in the world. I would never tell anyone, shut yourself away. But have the cognizant understanding that news companies profit off of our activated brains. This is the whole thing of like, is something in your closet killing you? Stay tuned to find out. And then you're watching the next two hours of commercials waiting to be like, is something in my closet killing me? I need to know. They're literally profiting off your fear, needing to have information as opposed to just living from a space of acceptance. So to get to authenticity, to bring it back to what the question was earlier, why was I creating, why was I overattaching the labels? Because I didn't know who I was outside of my trauma. I had to find something that I didn't associate with my trauma. But because my trauma was so strong, that new thing I would find, my trauma responses would eventually corrupt it, infect it, whatever you want to call it. And then that would be a new trauma source for me. So to get to authenticity, we need to address our trauma. From addressing our trauma, we then address like, okay, well, how many of these labels and roles were things that I was actually doing from a space of this makes me smile? As opposed to from a space of, this is what I need, because if I don't have this, I will not survive.
0: So what are some ways that you have addressed your trauma and you've moved through this process? And some ways you recommend maybe for listeners that have trauma?
1: Absolutely. The biggest thing is get into an understanding of something that's known as limbic system retraining. So the limbic system is an entire system in our brains that houses the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the amygdala. Very simply, it's responsible for emotional memory, and it is also responsible for our fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. When we have experienced compounded trauma over time, what happens is the brain then says, oh, the limbic system needs to constantly be activated. It's supposed to only turn on when there's an immediate, like there's an immediate threat there. So if we're walking out on the street and a bear shows up, my limbic system turns on and I either fight the bear, run away from the bear, give the bear food or freeze in place. And then when the threat is gone, my limbic system turns off and then I can start integrating and I can start going into my parasympathetic response and breathing deeply. But when we have experienced compounded trauma over time, eventually the brain goes, oh, honey, I need to be on all the time. And so we need to train our brains to work with triggers. So if you just start with like, I'm going to work with the trigger of purple balloons. For whatever reason, purple balloons are a trigger for me. If you can get to a point where slowly over time, and I'm not talking about intense exposure therapy of like, let me sit in a room of purple balloons. That's too much. We just, I think about a purple balloon and I feel triggered. And then the following week, I think about it for five seconds, then 10 seconds, then 20 seconds, then 30 seconds. And then I'm going to look at a picture of a purple balloon and then two minutes. If you're able to like be around a purple balloon for two minutes without being triggered, you're no longer triggered by it. You're just actively trying to piss yourself off. And of course, I'm using something very light as compared to like what other triggers can be. But as you start working through your triggers and as you start normalizing happiness for yourself... As you start being like, you know what? I'm gonna sit because I feel really content and I wanna be present with this. And I want my brain to understand that this is good, that this is a state that we want to be in. Then over time your limbic system will be like, oh, I don't need to be on anymore. I can breathe. I can take a break. I can relax.
0: And might I add as well, breath work is a powerful, powerful technique, calming the nervous system, bring you back into the parasympathetic as well.
1: Which you know all about. So if y'all haven't signed up for Christina's breathwork stuff, do it, my (laughs) goddess.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. Breathwork has been a powerful tool for me, dealing with my trauma, moving me through. So I want to talk a little bit about Buddhism and how you arrived at Buddhism and what role it's played in your healing
1: I owe all of that to Saudi Simone. <laughs> so, when we, when we went to Ibiza, I was very resistant to that trip because I felt very threatened by SA. Um, my partner, Ezra, who came on the trip with me, and Christina knows Ezra, uh, had been working with SA at that point for six months. And I was still in my trauma story and my trauma body. And so Ezra and I would be in conversations and then Ezra would be like, Saw said this though. I'd be like, who the fuck is Saw? You're paying them how much to work with them? And talk about our relationship that they have zero. Who the fuck is Saw? Like I was very upset and then went to Ibiza and that of course completely changed. But what really drew me to Buddhism, especially as somebody who was raised in the Catholic faith and then so naturally became an atheist for a long time. One thing from hearing directly from Saw that Saw heard from their guru that I had never heard before was this concept of innate goodness. And, you know, growing up Catholic, I was like, no, we're all made in sin. What are you talking about? What is this concept of innate goodness? I was told that only through God will I ever be good. And so without God, I'm I'm just doomed to be bad. Also, I'm queer, so I'm definitely bad. And just all those narratives and stories. And this idea of like, no, you are innately good. And then me being the, the rational brain person I am, it's like, what does that mean? It's like, oh, we can separate behavior from being. To, to quote the Backstreet Boys, like, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love yourself, right? I changed it a little bit at the end there. I love that. (laughs) It's just this idea that you can't change being. You can't change being, but you can change behaviors. And this idea and and, you know, before implementing Buddhism, I was getting into the neuroscience of everything first because I went through the scientific lens. And this idea that like, yeah, there's not really a guarantee for anyone that like this is who you are for the rest of your life We're ever changing. Even the worst, most heinous people like the ancient Buddhist sage and guru Milarepa, who started out as like a criminal and a murderer and is today one of the most revered and honored Buddhist teachers of many lifetimes. There's always an opportunity for change and growth if we understand and accept that we are innately good. And oftentimes, the harm we cause is our nervousism isn't on board with that idea. And so for me to get into Buddhism, I just became very curious about that. What does it mean to trust that I'm innately good? What comes from that? And then, of course, me being the hyper fixated person I can be, I got really deep into it and I have all the books and I studied under so many teachers, both Western teachers and traditional Tibetan Buddhist lamas and monks and Rinpoche's and everything. And it has all been this incredible journey of even recognizing that all of it, whether it's science, or Buddhism, or Catholicism, or Judaism, or any of that are all lenses guiding us back to this idea of innate goodness. Or as Eckhart Tolle once said, is all religions are signposts pointing in the same direction. Or as uh, you, you had Moon on here recently, and Mundi Simone loves saying the phrase, finding your path on the path. Buddhism in and of itself, even the way I personally engage and interact with it, will be wildly different from another person who practices. We all have our own karma, and that's the the uniqueness factor for every single individual person, is that our karma is strictly our own. And there's a lot of comfort in that, because it, it takes away this idea of, why am I not at this level that this person's at? Why am I not as happy as this person? Why am I not as whatever as these other people's? Because my I have my own karma. I have my own autonomy over the direction my karma goes in and my journey goes in.
0: The idea that we are innately good is so profound and so beautiful, and so against everything in Western culture and society here.
1: Colonization thrives off our fear.
0: Yeah, and the idea that we are not okay—that there's something wrong with us.
1: Oh my god! Even with just like body image, right? Like
0: exactly. Ooh, yeah. I'm
1: sorry. You your hips are too wide. Ooh, you need this hip buster. And we can also see the the capitalistic colonization of spirituality too right like you need this crystal if you want to feel at ease because there's something wrong it's it's scary exactly
0: or let me show you the way like follow my practice. <laughs> this is the practice you know me 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 no instead of let me show that the answers are within you which is you know really that you are good that you have the power.
1: can I can I offer this to your listeners and uh, you can tell me if it lands. I I can speak for me and if I can add for you too, because I feel like we know each other well enough. And if you're like, don't do that, totally fine. But like for me personally, I always tell people, find someone and I don't care if it's me, but find a teacher you can really trust who doesn't seem like they are doing it in a way that's exploitative. Find someone that you can trust to guide and nurture you, who you look at their practices and you look at the way they're doing it. Are they really living are they really showing up and doing what they are? Because the thing is, to come back to trauma responses, there are coaches in the world who, best of intentions, they do genuinely want to help people, but they're still tied up in the attachments to like getting a certain amount of money or the attachment of self worth through the coaching work. And in that, they might be causing harm. So find a teacher you can trust. It doesn't have to be me. I won't speak for Christina, but like, however you feel about it, but find someone that you can trust who can really say, you know what? I can tell this person is vested in me feeling self-empowered. Like for me as a coach, I tell everyone I work with, like, if we just work for three months, that's a win for me. I don't want you to be working with me for the next two, three, four, five, six, seven years. I want you, if I die partway through us working together, I want you to be good. Yeah. Whereas for me, changing therapists, I would be like, oh my God, without my therapist, I'm a hot wreck. I'm a mess because I was so hyper-dependent and not self-empowered.
0: Yeah. And I I totally agree. And I think that What you should really look for is somebody that is more of a guide, that says that they will walk alongside you, that will empower you, that will help you find your authentic answers and your truth. Don't trust anyone that says, I'm going to fix this for you, but you got to follow my directions, my path, my practice. I think that's a red flag.
1: I I literally did research into how cults were made because I was so like, I did not want to do that. (laughs) And so I just have weird knowledge about cultism, like cultism now, because I was like, how do I, like, you know, you have to know something to know how not to do it. <laughs>
0: You're like, how do I just to make sure I'm not going to start a cult here? I'm oddly very interested in cults as well. I mean, it's it's interesting to see how people have, you know, started these big followings, but more so how people end up following them and
1: actually believing all of these things, you know? It's it's rooted in that lack of self-trust. It's the It's the idea of... I mean, everything we're both saying is aligned, right? Self-empower the individual. And I feel that oftentimes people get caught up in a cult or caught up in becoming sycophantic for someone because they are attributing their growth and their healing to something external to themselves. They're saying, I'm only like this because of you. I'm only like this because you saved me. So I will do anything you say to completely save me. And it's like, whoa, yeah, you don't have to do that. It doesn't have to be like that. All
0: right, well, I have one last question for you have you had a spiritual awakening? And second part of the question is, how do you balance and come home to yourself again after a spiritual awakening? Because I know at this point you've had many awakenings.
1: (laughs) I was about to say, I've had so many. Every time I think I'm done, there's another one around the corner. (laughs) I'm probably in the process of one right now. And then I'll be like, oh, I'm so good. And then boom. Can Can we come to exactly what a spiritual awakening is? For me, it's the shedding of the bullshit where our brains love patterns and we get caught into things for a period of time and we get very comfortable. And then something happens that could be considered, quote unquote, bad or activating. And we end up in a shadow of the soul. And then we come on the other side and we go, oh, there's my spiritual awakening, right? So even if we were to remove the esotericism The esoteric nature of a quote-unquote spiritual awakening, it's just those moments where we suddenly just feel so at ease and we can't imagine how we ever felt shitty. (laughs) How could we ever feel shitty when I just feel so at ease? Or I often call those uh, really a spiritual awakening is that moment where you touch on presence. And it feels really nice. Like when you're at a concert of your favorite band, and I have an exact moment of this, my partner and I years ago, before even getting the spirituality or healing, went to a Guns N' Roses concert. And we were at, in the second row from the pit watching Axl Rose like on the right medication, having a blast and Slash jamming the guitar. They're playing Sweet Child of Mine and there was a moment where it was like the entire world went in the slow motion. And I'm looking around me. And I see everyone of all different backgrounds and races and creeds and genders and sexualities singing this song together. And I was like, how could life be any more perfect? And I was sober. I want to be so clear. And I was sober. And, and for me, that was a spiritual awakening because it was like, wow, yeah, this is what life is when we shed the bullshit. When it's no longer like, oh my God, am I going to succeed as just to use where I'm at now? It's like, am I going to be successful as a coach? Am I going to be able to pay my bills? Am I going to be able to do all this? Am I going to be happy? Like, I don't fucking know. But when I'm present, I'm like, life is good right now. I'm kicking with my girl, Christina, and I adore her. And we're talking on this podcast. So for me, that's like the "Ah." ha. The grounding comes in integration because we do live in a relative world. I'm not a person who can just be like, I'm going to go hop in a cave for five years, like the ancient mystics of days gone, long gone of gone, or like a lot of modern day Buddhist monks do. So I don't have that as an option. So the integration is, how do I remember this when I'm doing my taxes? (laughs) How do I remember this when I am creating stuff for my clients? How am I remembering this when I make a mistake and I inadvertently cause harm? That's the spiritual awakening integration for me of remembering that that innate goodness, that presence, that love, that compassion, that desire for a better now is always there and the invitation is always there to touch on it. And then, you know, I go through a period, I get comfortable and I forget. My nervous system forgets and I go like, Oh I'm miserable, what the fuck? And then I remember again. I'm like, Oh, okay, here we are. <laughs> and you come back around. Yeah, that's all that's why they call it samsada. It's a cycle. That's all it is.
0: And I love that you made that distinction too about spiritual awakenings. It People often think it has to be some
1: big thing. I mean, I can turn water into wine, but that was before the spiritual (laughs) awakenings anyway. So it's fine.
0: (laughs) But it can be little moments, you know, and it can be just noticing, like you said at that concert and you were like, wow, you know, this is my life. And just being in the absolute present moment and then just literally waking up to that moment and you're just like, wow, and it changes you.
1: Waking up for now, that's the best way to use power for good. Helping, becoming an invitation for other people to do the same. Exactly. Like it touches my my heart what you said at the top that I you said like if they can do it I can do it too it means the world to me because I want to become a permissionary of authenticity for others especially as a queer brown person if by me living in this way if I just walk by someone on the street and they see me wearing a dress and then they go they go home and let's say they're masculine presenting and they try a dress on that's so beautiful to me. Like the power for good to talk on your pod a little bit about it is about living in such a way that other people realize they're allowed to be themselves.
0: So beautiful. And you're doing it, my love. Such an inspiration. You're beautiful, inspiring, so powerful. And thank you so much for this conversation and for coming on Power for Good podcast. Where can the listeners find you? Where can everyone connect?
1: You can find me on social media at J on TikTok or Instagram. So that's J E M A R C A X as in X ray, I N Nevada T O. Um, you can also find me at jmarkexento.com. Uh I'm launching two big things next year. One, I am doing a 12 week group coaching slash one on one mentorship program called Alchemizing Authenticity, where I am guiding everybody who attends into the integration of science and spiritual practices to rewire their brains, to rewire trauma out of their brains. I want to be so clear to everybody, you will not be healed at the end of 12 weeks. I'm sorry, that's not how it works. But it takes on average 66 days to build a habit. So the idea is that through going into this program, you will develop the daily habits necessary to actualize the rewiring of your nervous system, to actualize the rewiring of your trauma so that you have the stories but not the trauma, so that you no longer have the triggers. And the idea is that everyone who attends, they get a a one-and-a-half-hour lecture from me every week, and they also get an hour one-on-one mentorship with me every week. I'm not sure when this is going live, but if this does go live in the month of December, I'm doing a 25% off for anybody who signs up during that month. So you can get in on it and get a good deal. You have to sign up for the waitlist form, and then I'll have a on-call with you. I, I do a check-in with everyone before agreeing to work with them because I'm not always the right coach for somebody. Or maybe they're not ready to get to this point yet and start doing this work, which isn't a reflection on them. It's just... I don't want to waste anyone's money or time. And it isn't, and investing in yourself is huge. And the last thing I want is for somebody to invest in this program and then develop the idea that healing isn't for them because they weren't ready yet, or I wasn't the right coach for them. When you sign up, we do have to have a talk first, Um, but I would be honored to serve anybody who's looking to directly target their trauma and work on that. Uh, The other thing is my friend, Shaman Papi, also known as Angel Diaz, who is a Taino non-binary shaman, and I are launching our first ever queer BIPOC retreat uh, next summer in June called Queer Liberation. It's going to be in the Poconos Mountains. It's going to be really great. And that was really just formed from like, in the spiritual space, it's very binary. So there's a lot of men's retreats, a lot of women's retreats. And for me as a non-binary person, I've I've never really been welcome in women's spaces because I present masculine. And in men's spaces, a lot of what they're working on is getting in touch with their femininity and I'm non-binary and I'm like, okay, doesn't really work for me. And so I wanted to create a space that was like, hey, if you're queer and brown... It's mainly the emphasis is on the queerness. So non-BIPOC people are invited. But it's like, if you're queer and a person of color, come through. Let us serve you. Let us support you. It's going to be five days in the Poconos Mountains. I'm in talks with the venue. So there will be announcements there soon. And uh, through my website, you can you can join the wait list for both things. Or just sign up for my email list. And you'll get all the updates as well as free practice tools. I, I do my utmost to not send ads through my email blast. I'm always like, here's some tools as opposed to like sign up for this, sign up for that, sign up for this.
0: Beautiful. So much fire. So many things coming. Congratulations for all that's coming. And yes, sign up for everything that Mark is offering. I'm sure that the retreat is gonna be absolutely amazing and props to you for creating the space, yes.
1: Thank you for inspiring me with your amazing retreat. I was like, yes.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you so much and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks everyone for listening, sending love. I'm Christina Ray, and you've been listening to the Power For Good Podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate and review this podcast and join me next week for another powerful conversation. Share a story of how you are using your power for good by sending me a DM on my Instagram, at Christina Ray Almeida. I'll be sharing your stories at the end of every episode weekly. If you're interested in learning more on how we can work together, head to my website, I am and let's connect. Sending you so much love, and remember, you are
1: powerful.